Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today. And we've got two special guests to talk about some different topics today. I've got Dr. Blaine Johnson, who's finishing his PhD here at K-State and is going to be joining the faculty at Texas Tech here at the first of next year. And Dr. Steve Inslee, who's here at Kansas State and does toxicology. Good morning, Steve. Morning. Morning, Blaine. Morning, Brad. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have your expertise as we're going to talk about some topics that are really relevant to some of our producers out there, especially drought related plant issues. So as my friend Steve has told me multiple times in the hallway, everything's related to toxicology. So we'll we'll relate that back to what are some of the potential toxins. Blaine's going to give us an update on some of his research he's been doing on heart disease in feedlot cattle and what are some of the causes or potential issues that we see with those cattle. And then we're going to wrap up by talking a little bit about the nutrition and managing nutrition and what do liver biopsies tell us. So before we get into that, I know you guys, Blaine's from Iowa. Steve spent a lot of time in Iowa. I caught them this morning reminiscing about sweet corn. So that was what all their conversations were related to. So I want to know what's your best way to prepare sweet corn? Do you just boil it? Do you roast it? Do you, what's your best way, Blaine? Oh, my best way. See, I have two two ways. There's the classical way, which is just boiling it. And then, but I'm one of those guys that likes my sweet corn not hot. I like it either almost room temperature to a little warmer. Some people like it right out of the water, hot, butter melted and all that stuff. But I kind of like mine a little cooler. And then recently, like in the last 10 years recently, uh, I like putting it on the grill too and getting a nice little sear on it. That's got a good little flavor to it as well. So those are my two preferred ways to eat sweet corn. I think you have to eat it hot. I don't like it super hot. You can't eat it cold. Well, it's not cold, but it's not hot. Steve? Yeah, sweet corn in Iowa is uh, it's an art, I'd say. And it's they, they really, really have great sweet corn. So, yeah, usually anyway, I mean, I'll eat it any way I can. But I'll, grilling in the husk is the best way, I'd say. I, I think that's a good way is grilling it in the husk. I figured I'd go to the experts for my sweet corn knowledge and figure yeah, out. Yeah, if you haven't had Iowa sweet corn, you haven't, you, you're missing out. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're missing it. So we appreciate you guys joining us. I gave a, a, a little bit of background info on both you guys as we started, but happy to have you here providing insight on some of these topics. And one that I wanted to jump in on, many regions of the country are going through some dry periods and some drought, and it even varies by state how much that's impacting our pastures. And I know, Steve, you and I have both received calls recently on a couple specific topics relative to what do we do with some of those forages. And I'm gonna start out with a relatively common one and we'll talk about prussic acid, which is a toxin that forms in some of our grasses, specifically Johnson grass is one we think about. So tell, tell me what goes on there and how big a problem that can be. So yeah, cyanide and nitrate are still really two plant-related issues that we see a lot, of, uh, you know, have a lot of concern about, and we see issues with depending on the weather and the environment. But prussic acid is 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 cyanide, so it's a cyanide toxicosis, and it's very acute if animals consume plants uh, with high cyanide, high enough to cause clinical signs. Usually within 30 minutes, you can start to see that they're having trouble trying to oxygenate and uh, and they can die quickly 
and and the good thing about cyanide and sometimes nitrate is it's it's very quick so you can see animals die very after you put new feed out or they get access to feed with elevated cyanide or nitrates uh, they can they can start to die very quickly and if you get them away from that feed within two hours or so it's it's all that's going to be you know all the death loss is going to be over with so i mean it can be very acute especially with cyanide because it's very potent nitrates you know we do see some potentially chronic issues with a low low level nitrate issue that we uh, feel like we have some problems with but both of those are really if if for, for plant toxicosis they're common and we see a lot of issues with those so so both of them are going to cause some <laughs> problems with oxygenation you'll see really rapid responses and as we think about some of those, both nitrates or the cyanide, prussic acid, are concerns, especially when that plant is stressed, right? It's, it's, and which is why we talk about it. Sometimes we'll talk about prussic acid in the fall, right around the time of that first frost. Right. And you've got a few days after that for it to dissipate. We'll see this in some of our other sorghums or if you're going to graze milo or something like that. Right. right after that first frost, the concern, is that the same principle that we're dealing with? Correct. I mean, that's typically the Sudan, Sudan or sorghums have enough cyanide. They try, they're, they're trying to breed all that out of those plants so we don't have those. But unfortunately, the, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the plants, when stressed, will have a, a cyanide, you know, that's go, going to be an issue and and, and I, yeah, the majority of the calls, a lot of calls I get are right at frost time and they want to know if it's, if we just, if we just had a frost, is it safe to feed or when can you feed after a frost? And so my general rule of thumb with, with, uh, anything with prussic acid in there is that if you, if you green chop and feed it immediately, you're all right. It's when we uh, green chop and then leave that feed on the, in the wagon and feed the next day. That'll that'll be about the maximum production of cyanide will be at that time, and so that's when we kill most of the animals with with cyanide. But it's yeah, it's it's very potent, very acute, and the treatment options are per, fairly limited with that. So so when would be the best time of the year to really graze on Johnson grass, or when I need to be the most concerned when I have my cows out there? And well, yeah, usually if they're if it's if we've had adequate rain and it's growing, you know, and it's and it's not drought stressed or stunted, uh, that's a good time to try to graze that. Anytime, as Brad mentioned, anytime a plant is stressed and and cyanide's there or nitrate is there, that's always going to cause more of a problem. With the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest problem with the cyanide or trying to graze that is when the, when we get regrowth these those sucker rot or the sucker feeders or the small plants that come up and grow in the field after you've grazed it are the ones that usually really concentrate the prussic acid. So if so I'm worried more about the small short plants after it's grazed off than I am like because that stuff will get two right. or three four feet tall. Right. Right. So if you're if you're going to graze that initially, you know, we don't always see much problem with that. But when, when we get a regrowth and they're a foot tall, plants are a foot tall, two feet tall, that's that's when we see. Uh, they That's when they can really concentrate the cyanide and be an issue. So it's when they're smaller. What about sometimes that Johnson grass will turn yellow or yellow on the edges? Is that a sign of stress or is that okay? Yeah. So that, yeah, the plant's probably stressed, you know, not, not getting enough moisture or, you know, not going through photosynthesis like it should be. And so anytime you stress that, that's always a concern. You know, we always want to, that's a, that's a red flag, you know, look at it and see, you know, make sure we know what, what's going on there before you just, it's never a good idea to put the cattle out there and see what happens. Yeah. (laughs) That's usually usually not the best plan. No. Right. No. So, so, Watching that grazing, though, because Johnson grass, 
can one be hard to get rid of if you want to get right. rid of it, but two can provide actually some pretty good nutrition, right? If it, if we're out there and we're grazing it going through, as long as we don't have those toxic problems. What about the night? You mentioned nitrates a couple times. Where am I concerned about nitrates? Are there specific plants, or is it the same th- thinking same family of plants? So yeah, we see. You know, sometimes it depends on the amount of fertilizer you've applied. Typically, if we need a hundred pounds of in on a on a pasture or, in a, or a, a, a crop field, everybody will put 200 pounds on. And if we, if we, you know, if we're, if we're limited by moisture and the plants aren't growing, they'll usually pull the nitrate up in the plant. It gets stuck in there. They can't metabolize it. They're not going through photosynthesis. So the, the nitrate concentration gets high enough to be an issue then. With the high fertilizer cost this year, it may be less of a less of a concern about putting too much on yeah although i was talking to a feedlot group yesterday because they were going to start bailing some of their sedan because they were were, it was dry and it was it was you know burning up so they were going to go ahead and bail it and uh i said well you know how much nitrogen you put on they go you don't want to know because i said they knew they knew they had over fertilized you know anticipating they were going to get rain then we didn't so the good thing is they said the inclusion rate on the on the hay in the feedlot was only going to be like at four or five percent so okay so so let's talk a little bit about if i'm making these things into hay right so either and we've got two things that we're talking about the the prussic acid cyanide and then the nitrate if i cut some of these grasses or cut some of those crops and make them into hay do those problems go away over time? Do they dissipate? Or is it going to be just as big a problem in my hay? So the cyanide, you know, when you bale it, it's probably, uh, after you bale it and you mechanically crimp that, that will help get rid of a lot of the cyanide that's an issue in there. Nitrates, baling it will will help some. I mean, the best way is to ensile it if you have that option. Ensiling will decrease the nitrates by a third if you, got, if you were able to ensile correctly and get a good... Uh, ensiling process going so you so yeah harvesting is going to decrease it some ensiling is the best way if we baleage or ensiling if you can if you can't go ahead and make hay or or you know go ahead and however you're going to prepare it and then we need to you know try to do some sampling just we may do some testing to figure out if you're concerned and i think that's one of the big things on any of these toxins i liked what you said earlier steve is the best way is often not just to send some cows out and try it because with these toxins the only way you know if they're there is if the cows die right right so you got to well that's not a great way to know, no. but that is one way you can find out because they happen very rapidly. So. so other than sudden death, what else can you look for that might confirm your diagnosis of uh, toxic So, So, yeah, when we talk about that to the students, I say the first the first thing you do if you've got cattle that you just put new feed out and within a half an hour they're starting to have problems or, you know, not, not uh, ambulatory or having, you know, staggering or not acting right is to get a venous blood sample. So you, if you pull up a venous blood sample and the, and the blood is chocolate brown, that's nitrate. If you pull it up and it's cherry red, that's cyanide. Being able to look at the, a venous blood sample is, is pretty diagnostic. I mean, they're, you know, it's one of the few things we can do in the field immediately. You can draw a venous blood sample and tell what you have. And, and sometimes we see both, both things going on at the same time because it was Sudan that was high, you know, nitrate stressed and high, had a lot of cyanide. So we can see both things. And main, main treatment, get them away from that feed. Right. Because we don't have a lot of other things that we can do right. for the cattle that are available and approved. There have been right. some things talked about, but I would say consult with your veterinarian and make sure that whatever 
treatment you're doing is approved, and there aren't very many things that, that we can use that are helpful. For yeah, you. unfortunately, uh, FDA's really limited our antidotes for food animals in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, we the same antidotes that were available 40 years ago when I started practice, you know, are not available now. But, I mean, the, the efficacy, they were... They worked very well then. They still work very well, but we're, we're limited on what we can legally use to try to treat those. Absolutely. And I appreciate the insight there. And, and I want to shift gears and, and talk a little bit. And Blaine, I wanted to find out, because you've been working the last couple of years. I mentioned you're working on your PhD. You're a veterinarian who's practiced in Iowa and Canada before coming back here. You've got your master's in nutrition, but you and you've spent your research on looking at heart disease in feedlot cattle and this is a disease that we have talked about more and more frequently and there are some concerns about is it increasing in prevalence what do we see what are some of the signs i want to start with what would you expect clinical signs for heart disease in feedlot cattle yeah so clinical signs will vary depending on the stage of when animals are in their heart disease spectrum. And typically, I'm, it goes back to uh, the name brisket disease, and that's probably the most common thing you'll hear tossed around feed yards is the swollen up brisket all the way bottled up into their jaw. And when you see that, that's pretty classical with heart disease, but there's other things that can be involved in there, like hardware as well can cause same clinical features as that. But typically, it's anything that affects the heart. So we're going to start seeing labored breathing, animals that aren't performing with the rest of their pen mates, hanging back, elbow will start to be um, pushed out a little bit more to help them breathe. Their neck might be extended a little more. They'll start getting a little gant, maybe a little pot belly to the, where fluid starts building up, building up in their abdomen. And these animals just act different is what a lot of cowboys and pen riders will tell you. Um, some of them even uh, tell stories about uh, their manure consistency is changing. So there's a lot of different things to look for, but in ultimately once it gets to full-blown clinical stage, there's not a lot of things we can do up about it at that point. Yep. So we're talking about things today that are bad, but can't really be treated, both with stuff Steve <laughs> talked about and the stuff you're talking about. So, but we're, we're going to keep talking about it because, so a lot of those things that you see, those clinical signs are, are similar to respiratory disease in the early stages. And in, in your research though, heart disease will often result in death. And we're looking for what are some of the commonalities. So I, I would ask, one of the things I've heard, heart disease often we think of occurring late in the feeding phase. So how often did you see heart disease and when did it occur during the feeding phase? Because I know you've got data from US feedlots and Canadian feedlots across the, across the spectrum. So what did you see? Yeah, when you uh, plot when animals die of heart disease in a graph and just put everybody up on the same graph and everybody talks about heart disease being a late disease problem. Well, when we looked at the data and we asked the same question, we put all our points out there, we see that it is across the spectrum just about everywhere during the feeding period. That it's not just one point during the feeding period, either that being late or early or mid. It's pretty uniform and consistent throughout the feeding period. So when you want to think about your risk of heart disease, your risk is consistent about every day going throughout the feeding period from what data we've looked at across different populations and different countries. So, and those are two consistent findings I've found in the data. 
and it's been supported by previous data too by uh, Dr. Neary and his uh, published work as well. So how often does it occur? How often? We're seeing heart disease at a rate about seven in 10,000. That's at uh, death rate. Um, if you want to start including railers, so animals that don't die at the feed yard that are removed from the feeding period earlier, you can add about another nine in 10,000. So we're Overall, heart disease is encompassing about a fifteen and ten thousand head uh, of cattle that we're seeing in the data. So, fifteen in ten thousand head that were received, but that works out to be about five percent of the death loss. Is that about right? Close, yeah, yeah, right around five percent of the of the dead pile. So, it is. Uh, I think that's something that is a significant uh, a significant problem that's going forward. I know one of the things you were doing was looking at risk factors or potential things about those cattle that we could learn that they had in common. Uh, You just mentioned it's all across the feeding phase, so not just heavy cattle. Was there anything you found relative to risk factors that would help us narrow in on this group's more likely? Unfortunately, there's no smoking gun that we found. Uh, We have found other factors that are associated with heart disease, so it increases the risk. So we're taking a baseline risk of about a 0.15%, and we're jumping up to as high as we can see is a 4 to 6% in the population. So it's a significant jump, but it's not large in scale like compared to BRD or anything like that. Things that we see that increase risk are animals that are treated multiple times for diseases from two different types of diseases. So if an animal is treated for BRD and a GI disease, its risk of heart disease is actually increased um, compared to baseline population. And we also see that animals that are treated multiple times for BRD had an increased risk of heart disease. Our data has some mixed results on elevation. Uh, That's another hot topic with heart disease is how elevation plays a role with heart disease. One of my analysis found is elevation goes up, the risk of heart disease went up as well. And then another analysis that I used that included Canadian and U.S. cattle had mixed results. There's a higher risk of heart disease at moderate elevation versus the highest elevation, but there's a bunch of different factors that can go into explaining that or uh, influencing that as well. Because I think that's an interesting finding in and of itself. And to kind of break out a couple of things you said, one, elevation isn't the only factor. Because when we talked about heart disease not that long ago, we would say only in cattle moving to high elevations. That's not what you're seeing. Those numbers you quoted are from cattle in the central plains that are not at elevation. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I think our highest feed yards running around a, most of them are run around a 1500 meters so, or lower. Most of them are a lot lower than 1,500 meters, so we're looking at 2,000 feet or something, or yeah. right around there. Yeah, and I think and I think the other part that you brought up, one of the risk factors, and just to clarify, you said cattle treated multiple times. You, you don't think that's causing the heart disease. It's just that potentially they were misdiagnosed early because the clinical signs overlap so much. That's the potential, and I mean, with retrospective data, you can't really tell which is coming first, the chicken or the egg. All you know is that they're they're associated with one another. Absolutely. So last, and that's cool research, Blaine, and I look forward. You've got a couple of publications out. We'll put the links in the show notes if anybody wants to go look at those publications. And, and I want to get to this last topic because I think this is a question that we get asked. So sometimes people will talk about liver biopsies and, and there's a couple reasons to do those. And I know Steve toxicology is one of them. Blaine, with your nutrition background, sometimes we do some nutrition. I guess I would ask from a producer standpoint, is this something I even need to consider or do I only need to consider it if there's a problem? So Steve, I'll start with you. Yeah, I'm a little biased, so I'll start out with that. But 
Yeah, I think liver biopsies really tell us a lot. It's non-invasive, you know, and safe. A lot of people, uh, impression of a liver biopsy is it's open heart surgery and it's going to take a long time. And when you get experience, you can you can probably do a biopsy in five minutes. I so mean, you said non non-invasive. You got it. You got to invade a little bit to well, get to the liver. So, it's not yeah, on the outside. But right. But I mean, the, the, the tool we use, the biopsy tool we use, is like a 16 gauge needle, and we go in on the right side, you know, maybe two inches deep to get the piece of liver that we need, and it's a pencil lead piece of liver, probably one inch long. Uh, and and the good thing is we've got the equipment we have to be able to to measure a small piece like that and get ac- get accurate numbers. Is this we've got a piece of equipment in our lab that. It's about $400,000 machine, and uh, that's what's enabled us in the last 10 years to be able to to, to utilize these. And so you can get to a much smaller sample size, right. and the way you're taking the biopsies now are not, if you're if you're picturing taking a big chunk of liver right. or cutting open inside to get in, right. you're not doing any of that. No, no, no. It's a, So we make a, you know, we block, we, we clip the area on the right side, 10th, 11th rib, and we block that with lidocaine so they don't feel anything. And we can go in, you know, about two inches so it's not very deep, get our piece of liver, get out, you know. And, and, and like I say, when you, you know, when you pr- get more practice and, and, you know, confident with it, you know, it's, it's you know, five-minute procedure. And this is nothing you need really expensive equipment no. for like an ultrasound no. or... No, a lot of people do like this ultrasound just to see where they're at, you know, and that's fine too. But yeah, the, the biopsy needle itself is about $50. Like with most veterinary tools, you know, they're single-use instruments that we'll use as, and you know, as many times as we can until it gets dull. So we'll disinfect it between animals, but typically, yeah, we'll do, we can do 30 or 35 animals with one biopsy needle. So the cost of the needle is not even cost prohibitive. So is this is this something I should do or consider well, doing on my herd? So or when what would trigger me? Yeah, usually if there if we've got some something going on that we can't figure out, you know, like reproductive issues or health issues when we wean or, you know, animals, you know, we we can't figure out what's going on. So I go, you know, we we need to look at nutrition, and this is some way this is a way to do that very quickly, easily, and not gonna not gonna damage the animal at all i've been doing this for a long time and i've never i always say i never had never you know had any have not had any adverse effects in animals at all and then i usually knock on my head and say knock on wood you know we didn't have any problems but so it's it's so i think yeah in my opinion it's it's something you know not, you don't need it every time for every animal that you're going to work up but when you have pink eye issues you can't figure out or foot rot issues or why why cows are open or you know anytime we see some of those, you know, or why do we have heart disease? You know, one of the things is to look at, look at, let's look at liver and see what we can find because that will, that's the, that's the gold standard when we're looking at mineral, mineral status in animals. So I think, I think that's a great point is you can look <laughs> at both toxicology and mineral status. And we talk about the nutrition a lot of times is there's three different rations, right? The ration I make on paper, the ration I put in front of the cows, and the ration they eat. And often those are three pretty different things. Oh, yeah. They're being selective, right. but especially with minerals. Right. Well, yeah. And, and a lot of times as a veterinarian, I get crosswise with the nutritionist, you know, because if we're looking at things and I see a deficiency, I go, well, you, 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 you know, your ration as you designed, it looks really good. But John Arthington's an animal scientist down in Florida, and he's done work in his lifetime just looking at minerals. You know, how do we get minerals into animals? And so he's looked to see, and he said one of the biggest problems is, you know, a third of the time, you know, we've got a third of the animals that will eat the mineral. We've got a third of the time that they'll eat 
maybe some of the mineral, and then a third of the time they don't need anything. So, you know, when we have free choice mineral out there, as good as it is or however you design the ration, if they don't consume it, you know, I don't care how good it is, it's not going to. And not all minerals are created equal, right? Right. Right, yeah, a lot of difference, yeah, between the inorganic and organic minerals and bioavailability and, you know, consistency, you know. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, it's not just because it's it's a dog-cat fight with a veterinarian, you know, a nutritionist, who's right and who's wrong. So we we both work for the same, you know, same end goal that we want to have healthy cattle. Absolutely. So this would be a good tool if you've got a problem you're, you're struggling with or you've got one of those topics visit with your veterinarian and they will help guide you if this is the right thing for your operation or not i also think as you tie that into some of our discussion you're right blaine not all the not all the minerals are the same but also monitor just like we're talking about monitor what you're putting out there and what's disappearing it doesn't tell us exactly who ate it but it gives us an idea of mineral consumption so i appreciate you guys joining us today and throwing in some of these topics and being able to discuss as always if you have questions thoughts or anything you'd like us to talk about on a future podcast you can email us at bci at ksu.edu